Welcome to Sedaris on this fine Sunday morning. Um, I don't know, you might feel a little bit like I feel, like, man, I already got some pretty incredible worship. I already got uh, a sermon preached to me, you know. I already had a great conversation. Let's, let's wrap up with the closing worship set and go home. But, you know, um, we're going to dive into a psalm here. But before we get going, uh, we're going to pass these baskets through the crowd to get any cadre, yeah, cadre signups. Um, so be sure to drop those in the basket so we can, you can get added to the list, get dropped in the hat. Um, yeah, cadres, uh, they're going to be great. They're going to be wonderful, um, precisely for the reasons that Dave talked about. Um, and uh, our cadres often unpack the sermon that we preached on Sunday, kind of to, to share some of the key things that cut your heart uh, during the sermon time. You bring that into cadres and you discuss that a little bit, like what really got down into your heart and, and challenged you or encouraged you. So we have to preach so that you're in your cadre this week, you can unpack how Psalm 8 impacted your life. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Um, open it up to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the book that takes up the most pages in your Bible. It's about halfway through, and so when you just open your Bible up to the middle, start flipping around, you're going to bump into the book of Psalms, and when you do, go to Psalm 8, the big number 8. That's where we're going to be working from today. Um, some of you may be surprised. You're like, whoa, we've been in the book of John all year, and now you're shifting gears to the Psalms. What's going on? Like Dave said, this is a, a summer tradition here at Sedaris. We love to just take some time in the Psalms in the summer just uh, what's beautiful about the Psalms, they don't build on each other, so we can kind of take some weeks off here. Um, so yeah, now before we dive into Psalm 8, I'm going to try to give you a, the 30,000-foot view of the Psalms so that you can uh, dive into and begin to grasp this a little bit easier so it's not just a huge jolt for you. Um, but the Psalms, also called the Psalter, comprised of like 150 different works, different works, 150 different works by a couple dozen different authors as well, maybe even more. About half of them were written by King David of Israel, a guy who reigned Israel a thousand years before Christ. About another 50 of them were anonymous, so we don't really know who wrote it. And the remaining couple dozen are written by different leaders and worship leaders of Israel and and. Uh, throughout their history. Um, and so they're all written within a couple hundred years of one another. And, and each psalm is usually the byproduct of an experience or circumstance that the author had where they were going through something in life, they were wrestling with it, they were going to God in their wrestling. And the psalm is often the product of that deep season of wrestling where they were asking intense questions, feeling intense things. And, and usually the psalm is at, on the back end of that. They're writing about this experience, what they learned, and uh, what it was all about. And um, I'm not using absolute language here. You can't say anything absolute about all the Psalms because they're all their own very unique thing. They're doing very special things, each and every one of them, including our Psalm today. But one thing we can say about all of them is that they are very deep, profound poetry. Very deep, profound, artistic poetry um, stemming from these sometimes intense set of circumstances uh, that in turn, they can represent prayers, but all of them were set to music. They're all set to, to music so that they could be sung. So, so these prayers are the original praise songs of Israel, of the, the, the Jewish people. They're, they're, and they were prayed and sung by his people up until the time of Jesus. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, he prayed them and sung them himself. And they've actually been prayed and sung over the last 2,000 years as well. So, so we're actually stepping into some of the most um, 
profound spiritual contemplations of all of human history. They're not just the superstitious thoughts of a couple of Bronze Age individuals that are just thinking agriculture. They're actually the significant considerations of the one true God that have gripped humanity in every age since they were written down. So in every age, there's a quality to these that exceeds human attempts to, recon- to, to reconcile our circumstances with the divine. There's a quality to these that just goes far beyond our meanderings about who God must be. By some miracle, they are the very words of God. And so when God showed up in Christ, we shouldn't be surprised that he prayed them and sang them as well. Uh, we, we can't overstate the value of this, the, this volume of 150 prayers put to music. And so um, without further ado, let's, let's dive into the one that we have today. Incredibly beautiful, incredibly valuable, Psalm chapter 8. We're going to read it right through the whole thing to get off, to, to start off here. Lord, our Lord. So the first Lord is capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. And the second Lord is lowercase, so that's Adonai, okay? So Adonai is more of like a, a ruler type figure. Lord is the name of God, Yahweh our Lord. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? a son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout all the earth. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father God, we ask that you would open up this scripture, your word, that that you would make it clear to us that we can understand it with our minds, that you would make it uh, evident to us that we might open up our hearts to it, God. Right now, we just pray you would give us eyes to see your word, ears to hear your word, hearts to embrace it, Lord. Would you show up in our midst and do that right now? Amen. Amen. Now, there's many types of psalms in the Psalter. There's psalms of wisdom, There's psalms of lament, that's mourning. There's psalms of deliverance. There's psalms of request for deliverance. But this psalm here, you may have noticed that this psalm is a psalm of praise, which is why we hit the front half of the service with some big praise songs. This is a psalm extolling the greatness of God, proclaiming God is majestic. And in fact, this is actually the first praise psalm that we come to in the book of Psalms. How magnificent is your name throughout all the earth, David says. It's verse 1, it's verse 9. It bookends this psalm. This is what this psalm is all about. How magnificent is your name? You can say how glorious, how, how mighty, even powerful is your name. This is the thrust of this psalm. And it's in between these bookends that David proclaims why this God is so magnificent. Why is this God so magnificent? Have you ever thought about that question? Psalm 8 is very unique among all the praise psalms as well because it doesn't tell the reader, it doesn't tell its listener, it doesn't tell its singer to proclaim the majesty of God. 
It doesn't say lift up your hands. It doesn't say lift up your voices. There's nothing in this psalm that actually tells us to do anything. It's just proclaiming that God is majestic, and then it tells us why that is. And, and maybe perhaps part of the reason here is, is always before the scriptures, the life of, of following God, always before the do this is the understand why. Always before praise is why are we praising here? Why are we actually praising? David is actually inviting us to consider whether it's true or not that this God is majestic, whether he's actually worth praise at all. This is why I think it's the first praise song. We need to understand why we should praise before we're invited to do it. This is an invitation to consider the majesty of God. Have you ever asked the question, why is God so majestic anyways? What's so great about God anyways? Perhaps we just think, ah, he's just the big guy, so he's great, he's great. There's more to that going on here in this psalm. What is it about the God of, of these scriptures that's so majestic and great? Does it even make a difference in our lives? Like, does, it make a, does God's greatness make any difference to you and me? And is this any different? This is an important question for us living in Seattle. Is it any different than all, what all the, other relationship, or all the other religions say about God calling him majestic and great in the world? Uh, these are really important questions in our lives, and, and the more that we actually, the, the longer, I'll make the same claim Dave just made up here, the longer I live a life and I look at the friends that I grew up with, the friends I went to high school with, the friends I went to college with, the way you answer these questions are going to profoundly shape and alter your life and change the, tra- the, trajectory, the, the trajectory that you're going to be on. So, so it, it's, it's, this, these are profound questions. What is so great about God anyways? What's so great about him? And it's my guess that David's questions to God stuck out to you. They, they did to me. These are in verse 3 and 4. When I observed your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look out for him. I hope this sticks out for you. The psalm slows down right here, asking God these questions. Because I, I think this is an experience that each and every one of us have had. Now, don't get like, caught up on this word, the heavens. This isn't the capital H heaven, that is like where God is and dwells apart from creation. This is the heavens, plural, which the Jews use to talk about the skies and everything that they found in the skies. The, the heavens. And, and David says, let me invite you to a feeling that I felt as I beheld the grandness of the created heaven, heavenly order. The, the grandness of the skies. He's operating out of the assumption that God created it. He probably got that from a little place called the book of Genesis. Okay, so he's not making an argument as to whether God created it or not. But he's putting to paper here both the beauty that we see as we look out and the significance of it. The the beauty and the grandness that we see at the same time that's in creation. He, He has this really unique phrase. He says, when I observed your heavens, the work of your fingers, the work of your fingers, He's likening the act of creation to like an artist, carefully weaving things in and out of one another, just getting it just right, or a painter with a brush using their fingers, getting it all just right. You know, like God, David wants us to really make sure that we know that God didn't just utter orders for creation from a far way off. 
That's not what God did. No, he was personally and intricately involved in bringing every little thing into creation to create it into the beauty that it is, that we see it, that we behold in it, that we love about it. And then what did he do? He says, he set it in place. Very intricate, detailed, gentle, establishes it. It's, it's this beautiful creation that just exists and is, is firm, is sure, is going to exist from one day to the next. We can behold the beauty of creation. From, from one year to the next, one decade to the next, one generation to the, From age to age, the beauty of the creation stands. And David's encounter with this, we've, and we have it too, led to this experience that led to a feeling that made him ask these questions this experience, these questions that we're familiar with, with that, that we ask as we like see a sunrise as we're up on top of Mount Sai, if you wake up early to get there, you know? As, as we see the sun set over the Orcas Islands, as we backpack through the enchantments, like we all have this feelings of the grandness, the intricate beauty of creation that is just firmly established forever, and we're just struck in awe by it, are we not? When, when we encounter this beautiful landscape, intricately woven together, established forever, we ask these questions. What is a human being, God, that you remember him? What is the son of man that you look after him? God, who am I in this creation that you would even think of me, much less act towards me? These are David's questions. Have you, have you felt this before? At, at the center of the psalm, David articulates the insignificance that we all feel in the midst of a, a grand and beautiful creation, the feeling of being completely dwarfed by creation, the feeling you get as you see the mountains towering up on all sides of us here in Seattle, as the stars glisten just so brilliantly in the sky. And I would argue that people are more prone to feel this way in the Pacific Northwest than anywhere else. I'm actually from Denver, so I'm a mountain boy myself, but I don't relate to the mountains like people up here do. In Denver, all, what we do in Denver is, is we look at the mountains and we say, those are awesome, those are great, and those are really helpful to maintain an active lifestyle. Those are really helpful to help us work out and stay fit. Those are really helpful to get a thrill to go skiing down. Now, I would admit that, you know, some people, and maybe everybody treats the mountains this way as well up here in the Pacific Northwest, but there's another element there here, isn't there? There's another element all together. And I think it's actually captured... Um, in a really cool way, by uh, Ken Casey. Uh, anybody know who Ken Casey is? An author, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Anybody? If you went to high school here in the Pacific Northwest, you probably read it, unless you're Dave, because he didn't read any books in high school. <laughs> Start out, you Dave. One Flew Over the, the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay, his first work, instantly famous. Instantly famous. Um, but he actually wrote a, a second book called um, Sometimes a Great Notion. Um, and most literary Critics claim that while one flew over the, the cuckoo's nest was like his, his most popular work, that this second one was actually his magnum opus here. Was, like, this is the, the literary like, beauty, the most beautiful thing he created. But anyways, he sets the Pacific Northwest topographic scene in each of these novels, because he's, he's raised up here, and so he writes his novels set in, in the Pacific Northwest, and he, he puts it like this, which I think is just beautiful. He says, there is nothing, not a thing, about the region that made a man feel big and important. If anything, it made a man feel dwarfed. Important? No. While 
there was something about the whole region that made a soul feel whipped before he even got started. That the topography of the Pacific Northwest makes us feel small and insignificant in a special way that is actually unique to the region, and it takes someone coming in from outside the region to tell you this. I related to mountains and never seen them related to like this. This mystical, they're dwarfing us, we're underneath them kind of thing. This is the feeling that David is pointing to, that he felt as well. Gives us the smallness, the sense of insignificance. Being dwarfed by something great is, is a feeling that's perhaps felt best by us, but also by every single-sided being that has lived and has beheld the creation. The feeling of dwarfed awe. And up here in the Pacific Northwest, you get the sense that people can be spoiled by it so much that they grow an addiction to that very feeling. It's a thrill of a feeling, is it not? It's beautiful, it's amazing. But here's the thing we must remember about King David and the thing that we must remember about the Psalms. King David's a great considerer, and these Psalms are poetic works of art. They're art, and great considerers and great art, they lure you in a bit. They take what you consider to be true and deep and meaningful, they kind of put it out there for you so that you lower your defenses down, and and when you come in and you start to appreciate that, they want to jerk you somewhere else altogether. They want to juxtapose it with, this is what great art does. This is what, it it draws you in, gets you to put your defenses down, and then it jerks you somewhere else and says, have you considered this? There's something else here to consider. It it invites you, it entices you, it lures you in with beauty, and then all of a sudden you, you, you find it's rubbing you the wrong way. Instead of encouraging you anymore, the warm fuzzies disappear a little bit, and you discover it's challenging you. It drew you in, and then introduced a profound juxtaposition to highlight, to bring you somewhere else, to bring you somewhere uncomfortable. That is to say, the Psalms operate as a lot of art does, which is to say they operate prophetically, prophetically. Their primary goal isn't necessarily to reinforce what you already know to be true, that if you go out in nature, you can be small. No, they're trying to expose you to a reality that you're unaware of, a reality that's usually about yourself, that you're unaware of. Much like the the musicals uh, Les Mis or or Hamilton, they're going to force you to wrestle with questions of human dignity or rent. Who's seen Rent? Great, great musical. But at its core, it's written in the 90s. It's trying to get us to wrestle with the fact that love is still valuable in this age of economic expediency. It's trying to put a value to love that's beyond currency. You know, like it brings you in and then challenges you. The Psalms entice us with their beauty and grandeur in order to cut us to the heart that we might consider the meaningful truth that due to our fallen human nature, we're content to just never really pick up and think about. The Psalms try to take things out from under the rug that we've swept down there. So what is it? What is it that David wants to, where does David want to take us? Well, he actually answers these questions in verse 5. He goes on to answer these questions. He says, you made him, that's God, you made this man, this human being, each human being, ruler over the works of your hands. Oh, sorry, 5. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. And then he goes on to list all of the animals. See what he did there? 
He doesn't just let us live in the dwarf state anymore. He breathes meaning into us. He says the conclusion that we are inconsequential, he doesn't let us stay there. He says human beings have great and incredible value. While, it, while creation may make humans stand in awe of it and behold it, David says, hold on, don't forget to consider that God created humans too. And they have great meaning and value and worth and purpose in the world. He says, don't forget that humans are made just a little less than God. Just a little less than God? What? He's, he's playing with blasphemy. Just a little less than God, David? What? Just a little? He crowned them with glory and honor. This is ruling language. Made us rulers over creation, putting everything under our feet. David's trying to help us see that feeling dwarfed amidst creation. That's one level of awareness. To bow down to the power that beautifully created everything. Beautiful and good but also what we're to do is recognize that's only part of it. That's only part of God's majesty. Don't forget about what God is up to in creation inside of you and inside of me. For David, the fact that we feel dwarfed in creation actually should, is a truth that is dwarfed in and of itself by, by how God has placed humans within it. That is even greater of a thing. It's amazing. It, it's, this is the foundation of God's majesty. He lures us into this experience and takes us into this new place that we're just a little less than God. Wow. The thing that's so majestic about this God is that he took this intricate, beautiful, unending created order and he hands it over to humans. It's a gift. It's a gift. You made him ruler over this. You created this amazing thing, this infinitely great thing called creation and this infinitesimally small thing called a human. You gave that to the human to rule over it. What? That we are little let somehow to rule the world in that way? So he takes the question, why do you care about us, God? And gives us a better question to wrestle with. Why would you give this to us? Why would you do that? It's God's power combined with his humility in a strange way. God doesn't want to rule over us, David tells us, but with us and through us. And, and the same dynamic is happening in verse 2 as well. As, as we read that, you might have been really confused. Like, why are we talking about babies and infants, like rebuking evil powers? Look at it. From, from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. You even use babies to rebuke the enemy and the avenger. No doubt a reference to Satan. He says there's something intrinsic about a human being which you have given a human being their words, a specific power here in this created order to rebuke even Satan himself. Remarkable. In human beings being insignificant? David says, hold up, nah. They are absolutely, completely powerful in this created, oral, created order. Small? Yes. Powerful, incredible. God makes what comes out of the mouth of babies strong. God is so majestic because he's taken human weakness, he's invested it with power. This is what David's saying. Humans are weak, yes, but God is investing us with power. Whatever's coming out of their mouths, they're just infants. 
Anybody here had infants? Infants? No one here has had an infant. Come on, parents. Come on, parents. There we go. There we go. What comes out of their mouth? Terrible cries. Terrible cries. Unintelligible cries. But God has made that powerful. And David doesn't necessarily have in mind some specific instance when God invested infants with like power, like they cried and like the enemy was exposed in like a fun way. Like maybe, I don't know. He's trying to say there's something intrinsic about the human voice. Now here's the thing. God has adversaries. God has foes. God has an enemy. He's God. And, And when he has an enemy, it's not a problem for him to take care of. He simply snuffs him out if he wants to. God can make anything he chooses that he created simply cease to be a thing anymore. But instead, God chooses to defeat his enemies through human weakness. How magnificent is that? In his greatness and power, God stoops down to make human weakness the means of his majestic triumphs. David says, that's majesty. That that Yahweh, our Lord, infuses human weakness with incredible strength to accomplish his purposes in the world. That's it. That is majesty. Don't miss this mark of majesty because it runs completely through all of the scriptures. God's strength is seen and recognized exactly as God's strength precisely because, even all the more precisely because, it's established through human weakness. His wisdom is appreciated as all the more wise and grand because it's established through human folly. Um, There's this historian um, who was of the first couple centuries of uh, like 100s, 200s, who who said this. He once said this. He said, these yokels, which is like a, a term for like an uneducated country folk person, These yokels who wouldn't dare say anything in front of their cultural superiors are always getting together and teaching one another about this Jesus. Now, here's what's crazy. I'm 100% sure that's a genuine quote. I remember it resonating in seminary to me. But for the life of me, with all my powers of Google, I couldn't find out who said it. That's the majesty of God. Is it not that's the mad, that the message of the yokels has been passed down for 2,000 years and this historian, historian who's trying to be all insightful and make a name for himself is completely forgotten. That's the majesty of God. I don't know who this guy is. And it's beautiful because God's majesty works through the yokels to bring the message to you and me. God's majesty works through the yokels to proclaim the, the, the mysteries of the universe and what the creator of the universe is up to. That is the majesty of God. I'm going to read this to you. We also have it on a slide. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Brothers and sisters, hear this spoken over you guys. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It's from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 
in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May God himself get the majesty for all that he's done here on earth, even though it comes through, and especially because it, become, it comes through, yokels. People like you and me. God's majesty is his strength, his rule, and his victory working through human weakness in the world. That's what God's majesty is. It's not just that he's a great God that created some great things. It's he's a great God that created those great things, including human beings, but he created them as weak. And he's always decided to rule alongside, even before the fall, rule alongside them over the created order. And I think that David understood this more than any, more than many. The eighth son of the family, the eighth. And when God was looking for a king, he sent Samuel to the family. It started with the oldest. God has not selected this one. Then the second. God hasn't chosen this one either. Then the third. Not this one. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seven. Seven times. Not this one. But then the eighth. God has chosen this one. Do you ever feel like the eighth smartest person in a room? God's majesty means that he works through you, that he will and he can. So let's transition this to, be, to, to Jesus, talk about Jesus. How does Jesus relate to this notion of majesty? Um, well, God's majesty defined this way means that it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus Christ is born to a very, very poor family. Very poor family. How do we know that? Um, when he was born, uh, all Israelites had to make an offering for their firstborn son, and, and really depending on how much income you generated, the offering was kind of to be associated with that. So if like, you're pretty rich, you'd offer a bull. The very bottom of the pile is offered two, two doves. And this is the offering that Luke tells us Jesus' parents make at the temple for him. He's born to the poorest family, the, the poorest level of family in Israel in a stable. And it shouldn't surprise us that his ministry is marked by God's strength flowing through him as a ministry he accomplished as he himself was homeless. And in the last week of his life, Jesus quotes this psalm, actually, as he comes to the pinnacle of his greatness before his death. This is in Matthew chapter 21. It's typically referred to as Palm Sunday. We we remember it on Palm Sunday. I'll set the scene for you uh, before we... um, dive into the verses I want to pull out from it. Um, at the beginning, uh, Jesus drew near to Jerusalem on, on this, this day he came into town, which probably wasn't a Sunday, maybe like a Friday or a Saturday probably. But um, he's making arrangements to enter the city, riding in on a donkey. So he gave his disciples instructions. He says, go to the village ahead of me. Um, at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. Um, Why did he want to ride a female donkey into Jerusalem? Well, well, Matthew tells us that too. He says, this took place to fulfill so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Zechariah 9.9, saying, tell your daughter of Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, see your king is coming to you, gentle, some translations read humble, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he chose to enter Jerusalem in this kingly way on a female donkey precisely because he bore the mark of divine majesty. It's the only way he could enter if he was going to ride anything. As a female, his magnificence must be displayed as him 
riding on a lowly animal into Jerusalem. That, that's the mark of his divine majesty. And, and some of the crowds saw what this might, might mean, and so they, they proclaim, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna just means salvation. They're shouting salvation. God's salvation is coming. God's salvation is coming. How wonderful. And so God's salvation comes into Jerusalem and it immediately goes to the temple, which is where you'd expect to go. Then he clears the temple. Dave preached a, a sermon on that. It might be a different temple clear, clearing than it is in the book of John. It might be the same one. He clears the temple. He says, the king is coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to the temple in his full majesty. And that's where we're going to pick it up here in verse 14. At that point, the blind and the lame, this is from Matthew 21, came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and if you're reading any of the Gospels up to the last week, you'll realize these are the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ, saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read you have prepared praise from the mouths of infants? And nursing babies? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. What is he saying? He points to the passage that shows that God's majestic victory comes through the mouths of children, of infants and babies. He's saying, yes, you guys can't do anything to me right now because of these praises of these children. You guys can't do anything anything to me right now. Because this city is behind me and even the children are praising me. And he's right. He was protected by their praises. And he had victory over the religious leadership of Jerusalem that day by the stronghold established by children. Now, eventually that faded over the course of the next week. But it does even even foreshadow a different victory that Jesus would have in a week's time. Because the level of majesty that Christ was about to enter, his weakness had to be fully, fully, fully on display. He had to be captured and bound and spat on and beaten. They they dressed him like a king, paraded him around from house to house and mocked him. He, He was slapped, kicked, and flogged. Ultimately, he was led to his execution, too weak to carry his own crossbeam stumbled to the place of the skull where he was nailed to boards, put up on display where he was ridiculed and laughed at until he died. And the most, this is the most weak, pathetic display of a human that history has ever conjured up. And upon his death, when the moment seemed over, God majestically worked. That is, his, his might and his power rose Jesus Christ from the dead, worked through all of the weakness, and set him at the right hand of God. The human weakness that was on display on the cross was exactly what God used to defeat Satan. It was exactly what God used to set him up to rule over the entire created order. This is the majesty of God working, being fulfilled in Christ. This is what God's plan all along was to become a weak human so that his majesty could take over and win victories and rule the world. This is why actually Paul pulls from Psalm 8 as well in this famous chapter, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Uh, We don't have time to go to that today, but 
In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul grounds Christ being raised from the dead, resurrected and fully glorified because he was fully weak. He pulls from Psalm chapter 8 in order to do that. Psalm chapter, this is the theme of the, God's majesty is the, the, the thing undergirding the gospel message of Christ, that God powerfully works through weakness to defeat his enemies and empower humanity to rule in his image once again fully, so that we too might humbly come to him, admit our weakness and need, and be infused with that same power, because Jesus left. He left which tells us what? The plan is still the same in a, in a way that even David was conceiving of it as for Israel. God wants to rule through us in the world. That is his majesty. So you see, we, we can stand in awe of creation and that's fine. That's, God, that's fine, that's good, that's great. But if we don't acknowledge that God created us as, as weak and needy and dependent beings to rule over it, we're just going to flounder through life as weak, needy, independent beings, not able to do that. This Psalm 8 is a call to run to God, to trust him, to, to, to admit, God, you've given me incredible responsibility in this world, and only you can be the one that empowers me to do it. This is your plan for humans. I want to get on board with that plan. I want to get away from my mission and get on board with your mission here in this world. That's what Psalm 8 is all about. David's inviting us. He says, if you go to creation and you feel that you have this grand experience where you get to step out of responsibility of the world because you're too small, uh-uh. That's the wrong response. The right response is you need to step into it and say, God, you've created us to have dominion in this incredible space. What an incredible responsibility to carry forward. How, please help me do that. Empower me and infuse me with it. So what do we do? How do we do it? How do we shift gears and, and get back to this, this mindset? Um, well, first, we, we must admit that sometimes we can stay in this mindset of humans being insignificant, like, like we're small, precisely because it's a little bit convenient to think that way, because then we don't actually have to pick up any responsibility in the midst of creation. Um, we may not consciously have made that decision, but perhaps this subconscious self-deception has crept into our thoughts, into our minds, into our thinking. And when it does, it, it displays itself in, in, its, in our living. There's no way around it. Our thinking always leads to our, our living. We can't ignore the fact that God has created us for the purpose of infusing his power because he's majestic. God is majestic. He wants to put forth his kingdom in the world through us because he's majestic. And we can't think that we're insignificant. To do that is to deny God's majesty to work in our life. To say God can't use me is to say God isn't majestic. To use your weakness as an excuse as to why God can't work through you is to say something completely untrue about who God is because he's majestic and he's bigger than that. And your false humility isn't tolerated. Let him work in you. The lower you are, even the more opportunity he has to be seen as majestic here in this world. That's what the gospel says. 
Let him grip you and work through your life. Nothing you can do can disqualify you from his majesty working through you powerfully. So how do we do that? Um, how do we do that? We have to realize that the, fall, that the fall of Genesis 3 did not undo God's ability to work through us any more than it undid the fact that we're created in his image. It gives, us, it gives even more of an opportunity to work. The fall gives God even more opportunity to be seen as majestic. We need to learn to rethink and re-see failures as opportunity for God to follow up and work powerfully that his name might be great in the world. And Jesus Christ was the perfect example of this. He lived that life that let God work through his weakness beautifully and perfectly. And his followers wrote down just some of that in the Gospels. But he modeled it for us. And it starts with this phrase, not my will, but yours be done. I want to recast this phrase for you in terms of God's majesty. God, I will get on board with your plan of letting me be weak so that you can majestically work through me. Not my will, but your will be, be done. And he sent his spirit to empower it all the while. So what does this mean? This means our goal in life is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Sensitive to the Holy Spirit, trusting where he guides us and directs us, especially if we feel pricks in the direction to take steps into places where we're uncomfortable and to, to take steps into places where we feel weak, to take steps into places where we feel insignificant. Those are not markers that we don't belong there. Those are markers that we are precisely supposed to be there and let God work through us. Our weakness being on display is the crux of what the gospel is all about, to let God's spirit take over and work through us, for us to lean into him in dependence, for us to look to him and have a sweet relationship that actually becomes a little bit of, the, of a thrill. God, I'm weak here. Would you please infuse me with your power? God, I don't know what to say here. Spirit, would you please give me the words? God, I don't know what exactly to do in this circumstance. I've actually never even conceived of all of these big topics coming together in this huge conversation that I'm in the middle in. I'm completely out of my depths. I've no idea what to do or what to say. Please help me. This is how the gospel's gone, gone forth for 2,000 years. God operates through our weaknesses because he wants to invade and, and rule this space and your space. Your workplace, this workplace, your industry, this industry, your friend group, your family, wherever you feel weak, he has an opportunity to be strong and be seen as the majestic God that he is. So one of the greatest tragedies in the world is when you become convinced you don't matter. It's the greatest tragedy. Another one of the greatest tragedies is in the world is when human beings, when we become convinced that others don't matter. It's easy to say that this problem that I think other people don't matter produces terrible things like the Holocaust. That's, that's easy, but, but I also produces something else that is so prevalent, especially in large city centers like Seattle, not really caring about people, letting them drift away, not really diving into a relationship with them or seeing them as someone that's worthy of just kindness and gentleness, conversation. That, that's what it's, when we become convinced that pe other people don't matter, all of a sudden we, we lose the, the relational basis that we need for God's majesty to work through us. What if we started treating people like they were 
intricately weaved by the fingers of God? What if we started doing that? What if we started treating people like God crowned them with glory and honor? What if we started treating people like God wanted to rule through them to bring his kingdom into the world? Each and every person. What if we started treating people like that? Like God wants to give them his precious created order to own forever. Not just for their lives, but forever. What if we started seeing people as more than mere humans, but as immortal beings that were meant to have significant responsibility in this world so that other people might be able to encounter him? This is the great Christian hope (laughs) that we're all immortal beings living forever with dominion over the created order forever as heaven comes down to earth forever. I think for too long Christians have forgot it. For too long we've forgotten that we're immortal human beings tasked with significant responsibility here in this world that God wants to work through us powerfully, that his majesty might be on display forevermore. And so Psalm 8 invites us to recover this recover this great dream of God creating the world and creating humans and giving it over to us that he might be seen more clearly than before, that we might be able to encounter more parts of him that we would if he just decided to rule it all on his own. God is in the business of making himself known and he does it through taking that which is small and insignificant, infusing it with power so we might discover how majestic this God really is. That's God's majesty. Will you let it grip you? Will you let it work through you? Will you kneel before him and say, I'm weak? Would you please work through me and have your strength be on display in my life? Please pray with me.